How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study this evening, let's make sure that we are in fellowship. Have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1.9 if necessary. The opportunity to focus, put aside the cares and distractions of today, the cares and distractions of tomorrow, and to put your focus and attention on the teaching of God's Word for the next hour. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are the God who controls history, that indeed human history is the outworking of your plans, it's the outworking of your eternal counsel. Father, we pray that as we live our lives in the midst of all of the things that go on around us, the adversities that face us, we may recognize that you are indeed in control. And even when things look out of control, even when things look as if there's no hope, We know that you are the God who is the basis for our confidence and our hope. Father, as we study your word tonight and we look at Abraham, we pray that we would be responsive to the challenge of his life, learn from his uh, faults as well as his failures, as well as his obedience, and that the Holy Spirit would drive these things home in our own souls, that they may be, be there for our use when the time comes. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, last time we ended our study of Abraham as we were looking at the principle of how we respond to adversity. I want to take a few moments to review just so we get our heads on straight again and focus on what is taking place in the passage. Our passage is in Genesis chapter 12, and we're in verse 10. Genesis chapter 12, verse 10. Now, what has taken place so far is that God has told Abraham to leave his home in Ur of the Chaldees and to go to a place that God will show him. This is the first test in Abram's life. As I pointed out, there seem to be 12 tests in Abram's life between his initial calling to depart from Ur, and the final test when he is asked by God to sacrifice Isaac on the mountains of Moriah. The first test is to go. He fulfills that, or passes that test partially. He goes, but he doesn't go alone, which was the condition for the command. He doesn't leave his father's house. He takes his father with him. He doesn't leave his family. He takes his nephew with him. So there's a partial obedience, much the same as we have in many of our lives, especially in the years when we're immature believers. And then the second test, we find Abraham being tested specifically in relation to the promise 
reiterated in verse 7 when God said to Abram, to your descendants, I will give this land. And I made the point that what is taking place with Abraham has to do with the covenant, understanding the Abrahamic covenant. God has promised him a piece of real estate that has yet to be defined. He's promised him an eternal seed, and he's promised that through Abraham he will be a blessing to all the human race. These are the three elements of the Abrahamic covenant that are later developed under the land covenant in Deuteronomy 30, the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7, and the new covenant in Jeremiah chapter 31. The Abrahamic covenant is to Abraham and the Jews analogous to the positional truth of the believer. This is an unconditional covenant that is eternal, it's guaranteed, it is not dependent in any way upon Abraham's obedience. In the same way, you and I have certain eternal blessings that have been given to us at the instant of salvation by virtue of our position in Christ. So every Jew is born in a particular relationship to the Abrahamic covenant that can't be lost. Uh, it doesn't have to do with salvation. It has to do with these eternal promises. Now, if they're not saved, they won't ever, the individual Jew won't ever experience them, but the nation will. The individual believer has certain uh, promises given to him by God, certain assets that are given at the instant of salvation that can never be lost. Those are yours whether you're obedient or whether you're disobedient. The Christian life is all about experiencing the reality of those promises in our life. We learn of them through a study of God's Word. In the same way, in the Old Testament, each individual Jew was learning the, to experience in his own spiritual life the benefits relative to those positional realities given in the Abrahamic covenant. So we see an analogy there. The land is Abraham's positionally. The promise of the covenant is his positionally, but not in reality. God is going to uh, test him in relationship to that covenant. So the second test that Abraham faces is the famine test. And we get into an understanding of the adversity that Abram must face. Now remember, Abram is a businessman. He is not a religious leader. Abram is not a pastor. He's not a prophet. He's not a priest. Abram is a businessman, a man of commerce in the ancient world. He's a very wealthy man. And as he goes through his life, he becomes one of the wealthiest men in the ancient world. So when he is traveling from Ur to Haran, and then from Haran down to the land of Canaan, he is taking with him a larger and larger group of people. It's not just family members, it's his servants, those who work for him, his slaves, and he is responsible for all of them. And so when the test comes in verse 10, it is a test that tests Abraham. Now, before we get into an analysis of the test, I wanted to briefly review the doctrine of adversity and stress. This is foundational. I don't think there's any other subject that resonates quite as much with all of us 
as when we start dealing with testing and problems because hardly a day goes by that we don't face them. Point number one, there are two kinds of pressures in life. Adversity is the inevitable outside daily pressure of life that attacks and seeks to penetrate the soul. Adversity is the inevitable outside daily pressures of life that attack and seek to penetrate the soul. You can't get away from adversity. Stress, on the other hand, is what happens inside the soul. It is like when steel is stress test tested and you put outside pressure on the steel to see if it can withstand a certain amount of pressure. The naked eye cannot see any flaws in the steel, may not see any hairline fractures, but as you put that outside pressure on it, then it reveals internal flaws. The same thing is true, or the same dynamic is taking place in the Christian life. God takes us from the instant of salvation through a series of tests. Remember, God is in control. These tests just don't happen. There are no accidents in the plan of God. God takes us through these tests in order to reveal the flaws and failures of our own carnal, sinful creatureliness, and that we have to learn to be dependent upon God and His provision. We have to learn to utilize the ten problem-solving devices so that we can grow from spiritual infancy to spiritual maturity. So adversity is the outside pressure. Stress is the optional inside pressure of the soul caused by reaction to the external pressures of adversity. When the believer, negative to Bible doctrine, allows adversity to penetrate his thinking, he has succumbed to the arrogant skills which will go over uh, eventually. Now, second point. We have to remember that adversity or outside pressure has two categories. First of all, there is suffering from the law of volitional responsibility or divine discipline. Galatians 2.7 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he also will reap. In other words, there's a certain amount of suffering we go through, and we have to ask the question, Is this my own doing, or is this just the result of living in a fallen world? Remember, when we are born into this world, we're going to go through a certain amount of suffering simply because we live in a fallen world. We are associated with fallen people and fallen institutions, and we are a fallen creature. Because of that, we will, we will encounter a certain amount of adversity that is not related to our own volition. This first category of suffering is volitional responsibility, and Abraham is going to encounter this when we get down to the last part of this section, verse 18 and 19. Abraham is going to be basically run out of Egypt. He's going to, his reputation is going to be sullied because it will be discovered that he has lied and he has been a deceiver, and he brings all of that on himself because of his own bad decisions because of his own carnal decisions. The second type of suffering is suffering that is not related to our own volition, suffering that's the result of living in the cosmic system, suffering that God allows to come into our lives 
and is classified as suffering for blessing. Suffering for blessing is designed to accelerate spiritual growth. When we go through suffering for discipline, we can convert it into suffering for blessing when we confess our sins, get back in fellowship, and then start applying the ten problem-solving devices to that particular adversity. Now, Abram is going to go through both classifications. He starts off in suffering for blessing. That's why the famine occurs. God is going to teach Abram certain things about himself. And this is a principle. Don't forget this. Whenever you go through adversity, the bottom line of the test is to learn to trust the character of God. It always has something to do with the character of God and learning to recognize that God is in control. We're not. Learning that we must be dependent upon Him. Learning that He is trustworthy in His righteousness. Learning that He is fair in His justice. Learning that He is more powerful than our circumstances in His omnipotence. Learning that He's never surprised by any problem or heartache or difficulty that we face in His omniscience. And as we learn these, we, our, our ability to trust Him strengthens and increases. And this accelerates spiritual growth. So Abram is going to encounter this second test to accelerate his spiritual growth, and he's going to fail miserably. So our first point on adversity of stress was a definition of adversity and stress. Second point was that there's two categories of adversity, uh, that which is a result of our own bad decisions, and then the second category, suffering for blessing. Third point, adversity is what the outside circumstances of life do to you. Stress is what you do to yourself. Stress is always the result of our own volition. We react to that stress in some way where we're calling upon our own resources, our own ability, our own intellect to solve the problem in contrast to dependence upon God. So we just bring the stress upon ourselves. Every time we try to solve the problem on our own, we've already made a negative decision toward Bible doctrine, and sin nature is in control. And once sin nature is in control then we are in trouble. Point number four, adversity is inevitable. Job says that man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. You can't avoid it. You wake up in the morning and you think everything's going great, and next thing you know the phone rings three times and you don't have any clue how you're going to handle all of it. It just blindsides us. We think we have everything under control. And then... We don't. So adversity is inevitable. Stress is optional. Stress is the result of our own negative volition to doctrine. Now, this is what happens dynamically. I'm trying to put this into a chart. We encounter adversity. James chapter 1 is a key verse. James 1, 2 is a key verse for understanding this. Count it all joy, my brethren. When you encounter, and the word therefore encounter is the idea of falling into. It just happens. You just wake up, you're in a good mood, you got eight hours of sleep last night, you got up and had two cups of coffee, and the day is starting off great, and then, bam, 
Bad news. Something happens. You go out and start the car and the engine falls out. Whatever it is, it happens. The phone rings and you get bad news. You show up at work, you're feeling great, and you get a pink slip. It just happens. You fall into it. So along comes the adversity. Now for Abram, it's a famine. I have the three there to indicate the fact that it's a threefold pressure. He's got a personal problem because he's going to go hungry. He's in the famine. He's got a second level of testing because his family, his wife Sarah and his nephew Lot, are also going through the famine. So he has a responsibility to take care of his family and to make sure that they're provided for. And that's the second level of the test. And then it's intensified to a third level because he has a number of slaves and servants. In our day, it would be employees. He's the CEO of a large company, and he has to take care of them. So he has a threefold pressure here to handle the situation. Now, we can fall into any number of different kinds or classifications of adversity. Uh, I have a list here. This is not a complete list, but it gives us some idea of what we're talking about. Adversity comes in all kinds of shapes and sizes. The ones that tend to get us, as I pointed out last week, are the minor inconveniences, the little things that irritate us, like when I get on my computer and I just have to check a website or I have to send an email, and it's always at that instant that the uh, cable Internet fails. This has happened now for about four weeks. One of these days I'm going to find out what number to call and call them up and find out why. Five or six times a day, I, lose, I talk to other people, say, do you have any problem with your roadrunner? No, never a problem. How come mine collapses about ten times every day? Minor inconveniences, they get you out of fellowship so quickly, don't they? Then we have people testing. People testing can involve all kinds of tests. It can involve your spouse. It can involve your children. I know that's probably not true for any of y'all. It can, it can involve your parents. It can involve people that you're involved with in a, uh, just a friendship or business partners, business associates, people you work with. As long as we have to interact with other people, we have to interact with sin natures. And I am convinced that one of the most important things that you have to deal with in any kind of a close, intimate relationship is a sin nature. One of the things I always try to communicate to young couples who are so, have that rosy glow and they're so excited about getting married is uh, to analyze the sin nature of their proposed spouse. It's not that you need to learn how to get along with them when they're walking by means of the Spirit and applying doctrine. You have to learn how to get along with them when they're not applying doctrine and they're out of fellowship and that sin nature's in control. Most of the time when I do marriage counseling, it's not because the people are walking by the Spirit and applying doctrine. It's because they're not. And it's always interesting. You have a couple that shows up in front of you, and they have a problem, and things aren't going well, and and that wonderful relationship they had at one time isn't there anymore, and they want you to fix it. And it's interesting because usually when you talk to both the husband and the wife, they're great at pointing out the sin nature flaws 
in the other person. And the other person isn't even aware that he's operating on his sin nature or her sin nature. And so you have to be able to analyze these sin nature trends in your partner. And are you willing to put up with that? Can you handle that? And can you handle their sin nature trends when it goes on, when they go into carnality for two or three weeks or months or years at a time? See, that's the test. So there's people testing. Then we have system testing. System testing has to do with any sort of infrastructure, whether you're dealing with the uh, people at work or the hierarchy at work, whether you're dealing with government bureaucracy or, or just trying to get a bill paid on the telephone and trying to work through the hierarchy of the impersonal telephone operator. These are all parts of system testing. Then we have health testing. It could be your personal health, could be a family member's health, could be dealing with an older parent, could be dealing with a, a child. It could be a long-term pain or it could be a terminal illness. But health testing provides its own unique aspects and challenges. Then we have uh, financial challenges, unexpected expenses, Sudden losses, loss of a job, loss of an income, just loss of purchasing power as you uh, get into those uh, golden years that are called golden years because they take a lot of gold to survive. And you're trying to live on Social Security and realize that your uh, income is losing purchasing power. You get an increase every year, but it's not enough to keep you uh, up to up to uh, date on everything. Then we have grief. Grief deals with a loss, and this doesn't have to be the loss of a loved one. It can be any kind of serious loss. You may lose a job and go through a grieving period. You may have some sort of tragedy, a house burned down, and you lose things that are important to you, things that have sentimental value. And so you go through that same grieving process. You may have a dream that you have pursued for many years, certain ambitions that you've hoped to achieve in life, and you reach an age and realize you'll never, ever get there. And so you experience a loss. This is another realm of testing. Then we have weather challenges, which is what we have here in Genesis chapter 12. You have famines that are caused by just a few different factors. What happens in a famine is there's some sort of obstruction in either the supply or the production of food, either in the supply or the production of food, so that you you have a climatological factor when there's a, uh, a shift in the climate and it become, moves from a climate that's wet and is uh, good for agriculture to a climate where there is suddenly heat or drought. So apparently there, was, there were several cycles of global warming about 2000 B.C. In fact, records indicate from... Uh, those dynasties of Egypt in that period, that there were several serious long-term droughts. And we know of one of them at the end of Genesis. There's a, and we know there's a drought here. There's a drought again in about chapter 43. Uh, and a couple of other places in Genesis in the ancient world, you have a drought during the time of Elijah. Of course, that's related to the disobedience of Israel. 
But you have these periods where there is a lack of rainfall for a serious length of time. Uh, You don't have that uh, at other times. So there seems to be these unique periods. I think part of that is due to the fact that the flood, if we're right biblically and there aren't any gaps, and I think you've listened to some of those tapes where I go through the dating chronology on the flood, that if the flood is approximately 2600 B.C., then and Abraham is born 2166 B.C., he's only four or 500 years away from the flood. And we have to think about the consequences of the flood meteorologically, much the same as we would dropping a, a boulder into a pool of still water. You have the place where the boulder hits the water as the epicenter of the impact. And the initial waves going out from that impact are going to be much higher and closer together than the waves that are further out that are maybe 20 or 30 or 40 feet out from the epicenter. And you see the same kind of thing happening in the, in the models that are produced by the Institute for Creation Research and their uh, meteorologic, meteorological department, that as, the further you get away from the flood, the less dramatic these highs and lows are. But right after the flood, you've had this major shift in the climate of the earth. And so you had a, globe, a situation prior to the flood where there was some sort of canopy around the earth, a stable environment, no wind, no great temperature variation. And then as you go, you have that collapse after the flood. Now there are temperature variations. You have the frozen zones at the, at the North Pole and South Pole. You have ice age that recedes or that... Comes and then recedes. So that, there seems to be evidence of that as we look at these hints about weather during the life of, of Abram. Pointed out last time that when we get into chapter 13 and verse 10, there's a hint there uh, that the, the plain of the Jordan was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt as you go toward Zoar. So there's this time where it's well watered, but we also know from archaeology and from history and from Scripture as well that there were periods of great drought that came. But in between, there were periods uh, where there was a lot of rain and there was a tremendous wealth of produce. So Abram has to face this famine crisis. Now, another cause for famine is the disruption of the distribution of food. For example, in a military siege. But that's not what we're faced with here. We're faced with some sort of uh, meteorological disaster where there's no rain. And, of course, when you hit this crisis, it didn't happen overnight. Abram didn't wake up one morning and say, oh, there's nothing at the grocery store. Remember, this change would have taken place gradually, maybe over a few weeks, a few months. Suddenly they realized, say, it's been... Three or four months since we've had any rain, the crops are wilting in the fields. It's getting hard to to buy things, and as time went on, it became serious. In verse 10 we read, Now there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to dwell there, for the famine was severe in the land. And it's an interesting word for severe in the Hebrew. It's the word kavod, 
K-A-B-O-D, kavod, which is the same word that in some passages is translated glory for the glory of God. And that's what the literal meaning of kavod is, is something that's heavy or weighty. And so when we talk about God's glory, it's that the presence of God is a serious, weighty matter. So that's why kavod came to mean glory. But it's used only a couple of times in the Old Testament to describe a famine. So we have here a serious, a severe famine, one of the worst in the ancient, ancient world. And so as Abram hits this adversity, he has to make a decision. Now, it's not an instantaneous decision. It's one that he had to come to over time. Now, I want you to think about Abram's situation. Abram is living 2000 B.C. in in the land of Canaan. And what do we know about Canaan, especially a little later on in history? This was a land that had uh, a pantheon of deities that were oriented around the fertility cult. The key god in the Canaanite pantheon was Baal, the storm god, the god of rain, the god of thunder. If you look at the other female deities, Astarte is a goddess of fertility. And all of this revolves around the agricultural cycle, how to get more produce out of the ground. So as Abram is operating in the what we now call the Fertile Crescent, which is that area extending from Israel over into the area of uh, the Mesopotamian Valley, the Tigris-Euphrates River. Uh, These cultures all had pantheons that focused on this whole concept of, of fertility. And so Abram doesn't have as much of a frame of reference for a God like we know in the Scripture. He is learning about this God. The gods that he's been familiar with and that he has seen in the religious pantheons of Babylon, the religious pantheons of of Canaan, were gods that were, even though they were the gods of thunder and lightning, gods of the weather, they often and frequently failed. They weren't able to control the weather. And I think that one of the reasons that you have the development of these Fertility religions and these, the, the primacy of these weather gods in the ancient world, and they go back to a period not long after the flood, is because the human race comes off the ark, and they had just witnessed this incredible weather disaster. And they've been on the ark for, uh, for a year. They saw all of the rain and storms that accompanied the 40 days and nights of rain which began the flood. And so as they depart the truth of Scripture, they begin to invent gods and goddesses that will somehow protect them from this evil uh, God, Yahweh, who brought this judgment on man. And so they start generating out of their own imagination these false gods that will somehow protect them Uh, from these weather disasters. So Abram is in that kind of a situation. He looks around, and the famine gets worse, and it gets worse. It doesn't seem to get any better. He's got a human viewpoint frame of reference of deities that can't really solve weather problems. And so what's the solution? Well, God really can't help me, so I've got to come up with a solution myself. 
Does that sound familiar? Now, I know nobody here ever thought that, but uh, I've thought it a few times. My problem is too great for God. Maybe I didn't come right out and say it that way, but that was the action. And this is what happens. We hit that adversity, and it's a decision point. And any time you have a decision to make about how to apply doctrine, it is a test. It may be a minor test. It may be a big test. But every time we have to make a decision on handling a problem, it's a test of doctrine. That's what James is talking about in James 1, 2 through 4. We are able to count it joy because we know that the testing of our faith produces endurance. And the word there translated faith is pistis, with an I, pistis, and it has the idea of an, of a, of an active sense, or excuse me, a passive sense of what we believe. It is a testing of what we believe. Every single time, whether it's a huge test, whether it's that monster charge of the elephant, or whether it's just these minor little inconveniences, every single time you have that option to either apply doctrine, apply a promise, claim a promise, apply a principle, or try to handle it yourself, that's a test. And we have thousands of them every single day. Well, if we're growing and applying doctrine, then we take the divine viewpoint route and we trust the Lord and ultimately everything builds off of the faith rest drill. This is the divine viewpoint route and ultimately we're using one of the ten problem-solving devices. But what I want to focus on tonight and in our study of Abram here is that we often take the no-trust route, the no-faith-rest-drill route. We're going to handle it on our own. After all, in some sense, we're saying, oh, this is just a minor thing. I don't want to trouble God with this. I'm going to handle this one myself. And we have all sorts of ways in which we try to rationalize our own handling of the problem. And this is the human viewpoint strategy. And we develop hundreds of these strategies to deal with the uh, problems of life. And ultimately, they are designed to protect us. And I call these, for lack of a better term, self-protective strategies. And the reason I call them self-protective strategies is because ultimately that's what they're designed to do is to somehow give us a strategy or a methodology to make life work, to find peace, stability, harmony, success, and happiness apart from dependence upon God. And what we see happening whenever we hit any of these tests is that this test is a personal threat to my stability, to my peace, to my happiness, to basically my ability to control life in a world that's out of control so that I can have uh, a measure of peace, happiness, and stability. And it goes right back to our sin nature. This is one of the most important things to understand. In fact, uh, uh, earlier tonight at prayer meeting, I was... Uh, praying, and the subject of my prayer had to do with the fact that God needs to raise up some seminaries that are teaching the truth and firmly grounded on the sufficiency of God's Word. And if you take the time to go to the Chafer Seminary website, you'll note that one of the distinctives of the Chafer Seminary is this doctrine of the sufficiency 
of God's Word. Now, where that really comes home is that we believe that no matter what the problem is in life, no matter what the difficulty is, no matter what the issue is in that marriage problem, no matter what the uh, ultimate problem may be and, and uh, the fact that you're in your fourth bankruptcy in ten years or whatever it is, the solution to that problem is always found in the Word of God. You don't need to go take uh, five or six courses in counseling in order to be a more effective pastor. You don't need to go take uh, courses in psychotherapy in order to improve your marriage or to learn how to deal with uh, the abuse that you experienced when you were a child or when you were an adult. All you need is the principles of God's Word. God's Word is sufficient. And one of the things I prayed about tonight was that God needs to raise up seminaries like Chafer to fill the vacuum left by numerous seminaries that got caught up in psychology back in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and it has pretty much rendered their spiritual teaching impotent. They talk about the sufficiency of Scripture, but they don't practice it. And one of the men said, well, well, you mentioned such and so seminary. What's the problem there? And I said, it's psychotherapy. See, there's nothing wrong with counseling. We all stub our toe, you know, hit our thumb with a hammer every now and then, screw up big time, and we just need to have somebody who's got a little biblical wisdom and spiritual maturity, that's the pastor, that we can talk to, get some advice. I'm not talking about a psychotherapeutic approach to problem solving. That involves weeks and weeks and weeks of, of counseling where we get together and you go through all these life histories and everything else. I'm talking about learning how to solve, solve your own problems uh, through doctrine. And to do that, you have to have a framework for understanding human behavior. And the flaws that you have, in whether you're talking about a Freudian model or you're talking about a Jungian model or Maslowian model or any of these other models, in fact, there's, I can't name them all because there's over 250 different models of human behavior in psychotherapy. And there's over six or 700, or last time I checked, there were over six or 700 different techniques based on those models of human behavior. So the question is, when you go talk to any of these so-called Christian counselors, what is the model that you're using for human behavior? And the, the sad thing is, is that for most of these people to be able to hang out a shingle, they have to have uh, some sort of recognition by the state to call themselves a counselor. And that means they have to have so many hours, of, so many graduate hours in psychotherapy, which is pure human viewpoint. And so there's very few of them have enough doctrine in their soul to be able to weed out the very subtle human viewpoint that comes across. I mean, the reason these systems are so popular is because at some level they all work. You know, Satan doesn't produce counterfeits that don't work at some level. Satan produces counterfeits that do work at some level, that provide a measure of stability and, and success and answers to life's problems. But what we need is men and women who are able to counsel people in times of life's difficulties that come to, to the table with a biblical understanding of human behavior. And that starts with understanding the sin nature. 
And that is usually something that is not given a whole lot of understanding in human viewpoint models of behavior. Oh, they may understand that people fail or they have flaws or difficulties, but they don't have a biblically developed doctrine of homardiology. So we have to look at that sin nature. And we're all familiar with the basic diagram of the sin nature. And at the core of the sin nature, I'm going to put two categories of sin, fear and arrogance. This is at the very core motivation of much behavior. And why do I say that? Remember, we have to develop these models biblically. I want you to think back to Genesis chapter 3. What happens in Genesis chapter 3? You have the fall. You have the sin. Uh, Eve eats the fruit first, and then she uh, coyly uh, introduces this wonderful, delicious fruit to Adam. And Adam takes one look at at Eve and one look at the fruit and decides he's going to follow her in the sin, and he falls. What happens next? What happens next? God comes to walk in the garden, and what is the first thing that you read when you read about Adam and the woman? They were afraid. Why are they afraid? Well, they're afraid for a number of reasons. First of all, they're afraid because they're going to get caught. They disobeyed God. They're going to be exposed. But they're afraid because at a a fundamental level, they have lost everything. And see, when they realized that they were naked, they tried to cover it up. They tried to solve the problem through their own human viewpoint strategy. And that's what I mean by a self-protective strategy. See, they thought they could solve the problem with their own efforts through human good, by creating uh, clothes of fig leaves. They could cover the problem up. But it's motivated by fear, and it's motivated by arrogance. Because arrogance is the idea that man is going to operate autonomously from God and that he can solve his problems without being completely and totally dependent upon God. Years ago, I read a radical statement by a man who was a pastoral counselor and uh, very biblical in his model and in his methodology, and it sounds harsh to most of our ears. But he opened a book on, I think it was a critique of self-esteem, by saying, I would rather people die muddy and drunk and miserable in the gutter than to help them solve their problem in any way that gives them the idea that they can find any measure of happiness apart from total dependence on the grace of God. Now, that's a radical statement. I don't want, as a pastor, I don't want to help people somehow solve their problem in a way that is anything less than completely biblical. Because if they do, then they think that they can make life work apart from God. And that's what's causing the problem to begin with, is they're trying to make life work apart from God. That's what I mean by self-protective strategies. And we all have them. From the minute you were born, when you were just that, that naked little baby getting slapped on your butt by the doctor, you started figuring out ways to make life work on your own. You figured out that if you screamed a certain way, then your parents would react a certain way. 
And if you cried another way, then they would do something else. And if you're a parent, you realize exactly what I'm talking about because you've been on the other end of it. You have seen how that infant, as it goes through those early years, learns how to manipulate you, learns just exactly how to uh, say things, knows just how to ask the right question, knows just what not to tell you, just what part of the story to leave out, and they learn how to manipulate and how to control. See, we all are that way because we are basically motivated by this fear. We're living in a hostile environment, and at the very core of our fallen soul, we know that we're living in a hostile environment. There's no security out there. There's no stability out there. There's no peace out there that day in and day out, everything seems to be out of control, and we desperately want to find some way to at least bring order and control Uh, if not to the world at large, at least into our own experience. And we're trying to do it on our own apart from God. So the basic core of the sin nature is fear and arrogance. And then, of course, we operate on the arrogant skills. We're self-absorbed from day one. That little baby is absorbed with himself. And as we develop self-absorption, we move to self-indulgence. We want to fulfill everything that we're absorbed with. We want to indulge all of our wants, all of our whims. And the biggest problem that you've got as a parent is to teach that baby that they can't have what they want when they want it the way they want it. And that's why your role as a parent is to teach discipline to your children, to teach good manners. That's one of the reasons you have etiquette is because we're all basically selfish, and if we're going to get along together as human beings, and if we're going to function together in society, we have to have some code of conduct that brings some measure of control to that self-oriented sin nature. So arrogance moves from self-absorption to self-indulgence, and then self-justification. And we're all masters of self-justification. You don't have a clue what it's like until you sit in a few counseling sessions with people who are both very positive to doctrine and just have a few bumps in their marriage. I'm not talking about the people who are, you know, six hours away from total marital failure. I'm talking about the people who just have some minor speed bumps along the road to marital bliss. And they just can't see how it is that their behavior patterns are part of the problem. And it all flows out of this sin nature that from the very time we're infants, from the time you were just a a screaming baby, you started developing habits of handling problems. And there's so much a part of your nature that you think that's just who you are. That's how we've justified it. Well, that's the way I am. That's the way my parents were. Ah, isn't that interesting? We move from self-justification to self-deception. It's really not a problem. That's how my mother taught me. You know, they were good Christian people. You know, what we see is an interesting pattern here with Abraham. Abraham has a certain trend in his sin nature that he's going to handle pressure by lying, by deception, and by getting somebody else to take the heat. That's what he does with Sarah, basically. He says, as we go through this passage... As they go down to, as he decides to go to Egypt to solve the problem, he's going, going to leave the land 
which is where God told him to go. And he's going to, in the process, he's, he's putting the seed in jeopardy. And so once you make that decision to go negative and to try to solve the problem yourself, what happens is one bad decision develops into another bad decision, and they start to snowball. And he doesn't, apparently hasn't thought things through very well. And he gets down to Egypt, and he realizes, wait a minute, I'm going to have to deal with Pharaoh, and I've got this beautiful wife. And we do have some indications from some literature in the ancient world that there, were at least, there was at least one instant where Pharaoh did kill a husband in order to bring his wife into the harem. So apparently Abraham finally wakes up and realizes, hey, maybe I jump from the frying pan into the fire here and my life's in danger. So he's got to solve this problem, and he says to Sarah, he says, okay, let's, uh, now I'm going to include you as, a, as an ally in my carnality. You're a beautiful woman, and therefore it will happen when the Egyptians see you that they will say, this is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will let you live. And here's a solution. Please say you are my sister. It's not a total lie. It's a half lie, because she's his half-sister. But it's a deception that it may be well with me for your sake. See, he's oblivious to the fact that it's going to put her into a vulnerable situation that could create danger and problems for her. He's just concerned for himself. See, there's that self-absorption and the self-deception. is totally oblivious to what, what the consequences may be for others. That I may live because of you. Okay, it's all on your shoulders. If I'm going to survive in this difficult situation, then you lie for me. So I can live. He's totally concerned with himself. Is this the only time he does it? No. He does it later on with the Philistine leader. Not only does he do it, but in the development, as we see this strategy, this strategic approach, what we also discover is that Isaac does it as well. In Genesis 26 7, Isaac is living in Gerar, which is under the control of the Philistines, and he lies about Rebekah and says, Rebekah, you just say that you're my sister, and so they go along with that deception for a while. See, there are certain proclivities of the sin nature that may be passed on genetically. I'm not saying that, that it's your father's fault, you just inherited it from him, you don't have any choice in the matter. These are just tendencies and your volition, you're still responsible for following that pressure uh, from the sin nature. So Abraham uh, it clearly is operating on self-deception, and he wants to deceive others. Uh, self-deception then leads to self-deification. This is the whole process in Romans chapter 1. We're ultimately deifying ourselves. We're the ultimate source of values not God. We're going to determine what's right and wrong. See, Joseph Fletcher didn't invent situational ethics back in the 60s. Abraham's operating on full-blown situational ethics right here. He's decided that what's right is whatever's going to save his skin. And so he begins to rationalize his own behavior. But his plan, his strategy is wrong for a number of reasons. It's wrong because it is, first of all, a violation of God's directive will. 
God specifically told him to go to the land. He didn't say go through the land and go to Egypt. So he is violating specific, revealed directions from God. Second, it's wrong because he's only concerned about his own hide, and it puts his wife in jeopardy. It puts her uh, uh, sexual purity in jeopardy, and it puts the promised seed in jeopardy. I mean, what would happen now that she's in the harem of Pharaoh, if Pharaoh came in one night and decided that, that Sarah's the one he wants to sleep with that night, then how would we know that the offspring came from Abraham? So he's putting God's promise in jeopardy as well. He's wrong because he's looking to his wife to be the source of his blessing and protection and stability rather than God. It's all up to you. You take care of it. See, this is what happens, men. When we get into carnality, we start looking for somebody else to solve our, our responsibility problems. And as I taught back when we went through Genesis chapter 3, that the general tendency for women is want to usurp authority from the male. The general trend for the male is to try to run from responsibility and let the woman handle it. Because when you look at the curse, as it's outlined by God, he says to the women, your desire, and the word there for desire is the Hebrew word teshuka, which means to desire to usurp authority, desire to control or to dominate. Your desire will be for the man, but he will rule over you. It's a strong word for rule there. So the trend of the sin nature is to have two, uh, have this war of the sexes, this competition in the marriage. It's only resolved ultimately because of sanctification, the application of the principles of Ephesians 5. But the curse for the man is that responsibility that he had before the fall, which was to take care of the garden, is now going to become onerous. Thorns and thistles are going to sprout from the ground. In other words, responsibility is going to become difficult. So when responsibility is difficult, we want to avoid it. So the trend for the male is to want to avoid responsibility. And you really see this in the spiritual realm. I can't tell you how many men who come to Bible class on a regular basis study the Word say when you ask them the question, who trains your children? Remember Paul said in Ephesians 5, fathers train up your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. He didn't say delegate it to the wife. And yet 99.9% of the time, fathers are delegating that responsibility to the wife because they just don't want to accept that responsibility. And yet it is specifically said to be the male's responsibility, the father's responsibility, to teach doctrine to the children. So Adam is, I mean, Abram is wrong because he is uh, trying to get somebody else to handle his responsibility, and he's looking to Sarah to uh, protect him and take care of him. And... Finally, he's wrong simply because he's choosing a course of action just to, just to save his own hide, save his own skin. Principle here, when you get out of fellowship, you'll start failing in all your personal responsibilities, and eventually you'll start looking to others to handle them for you, or you will start blaming others for your failures. Now, what happens with... With Abram, 
is that he's operating on his sin nature. He's operating out of fear because he's afraid that God can't provide for him in terms of his food, in terms of his logistical needs. And so in arrogance, he's going to solve the problem on his own. And he's justified it. Egypt's logical solution. There's plenty of food down there. Take care of my wife. Take care of Lot. Take care of all of my employees. What's, what could be wrong with that? Then what happens is our fear and our arrogance operates through our lust patterns. And we have two areas of strength in the sin nature. We have personal sin, the area of weakness, which produces personal sin. Sins, these are mental attitude sins, sins of the tongue and overt sins. And then we do all kinds of good things. And that's what trips us up. See, we develop these strategies to make life work apart from God, and we wrap it up in human good. We come up with all kinds of justifications for our behavior and how we react under adversity because from the time we were a toddler, we behaved that way. We've had a temper tantrum or we've uh, become very nice and sweet and manipulative or whatever it may be. You know, everybody's got their own uh, skill in this area and we don't even want to admit to ourselves that we're doing it because... If it's a violation of God's Word, then at a very core level of our personality, we have to change. What's the biblical word for that? Well, first of all, it's repentance, and secondly, it's sanctification. See, that's the purpose of spiritual life, is to learn to handle problems, not the way that makes us most comfortable, but by using God's problem-solving devices so that we can grow and advance spiritually. So we're either operating on sin or we're operating on human good, and this tends to lead to one of two trends, either a trend towards asceticism or legalism, which is moral degeneracy. This is like the Pharisees in the the, uh, Gospels. Or our trend is towards licentiousness, lasciviousness, or antinomianism, which leads to immoral degeneracy. Sometimes it's just a mix. One day you're a little bit one way. Another day you may be a little bit in the other direction. But you have to understand the sin nature, and what is at the very core is fear and arrogance and the idea that somehow I can make life work apart from God. I really don't have to claim those promises today. Somehow today I'm going to make it work. Somehow when my husband or my wife acts a certain way, I'm going to do this. And we're bypassing those biblically defined problem-solving devices so that we can make it work on our own. These are those self-protective strategies. They involve emotional sins, anger, anxiety. How many times in the last week, don't answer, how many times in the last week you hit some problem and you just worry about it? Stay awake at night. You're just tossing and turning. You're trying to solve the problem through anxiety rather than claiming a promise. Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension will defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. You handle it through overt sins, uh, trying to control people, manipulate them, 
micromanage the situation. Make sure everybody does things just the way you want them to, to bring some level of stability there. Sometimes in some families you see this dynamic at work, especially at Christmas or Thanksgiving, and you'll often see one person in the family who's going around making sure everybody's happy so there's no friction, and they're trying to control the whole situation so that that they can go home feeling like it was a successful holiday event. Then we use sins of the tongue to destroy people, again, through manipulation and micromanagement. All of this are these self-protective strategies that we develop. Well, Abram's strategy, and we'll wrap it up, Abram's strategy was to lie and to use deception. And so he lies about his wife, and the result is pretty simple. The result is that he's discovered Because God isn't going to let this happen. God is protecting the seed. God's protecting the promise. And we're told in verse 17, But the Lord plagued Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abraham's wife. And finally, Pharaoh confronts Abraham. And this is where Abram goes through suffering as a result of his own bad decisions. Now, the interesting thing here is Abram is also blessed at the same time. I skipped over... Verse 16, the Pharaoh treated Abram well for Sarah's sake. He had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male and female servants, female donkeys and camels. His personal wealth increased. Can you hear Abram's reasoning here? Well, this is working out pretty good. You know, my stock portfolios increased tenfold. God's really blessing me. See, this is how we justify our arrogance. We look at the positive things that are happening, and we use that to reinterpret the entire scenario so that we don't have to face our own sins and our own failures. But God ultimately is not going to let us get away with it, which is what happened to Abram. And so Pharaoh kicks him out of Egypt. And so he has lost respect. He has lost an opportunity to be a blessing to the Gentiles in Egypt, which is what the mandate was back in the Abrahamic covenant. And he has been a complete failure. Nevertheless, he has learned from his failure, and he advances and goes forward in his spiritual life. And that's the same thing with us. If we're still alive, God has a plan for our life. We can learn from our failures as much as our successes. In fact, for most of us, we learn more from our failures if we have true teachability and humility than we do from our successes because we realize how much we've blown it and how greatly we were blessed by the grace of God. See, God blesses Abram even in the midst of his failure, not because of his failure, but because of God's plan. And God does the same thing with us. And we'll deal with that next time as we take another look at God's grace and Abram's advance as we get into chapter 13. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this time to study your word. Pray that you would help us to understand these dynamics, that we would have the honesty, the spiritual honesty under the work of the Holy Spirit and the Scripture to see how these things apply into our own lives and to uh, make whatever changes are necessary as the Holy Spirit guides and directs us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.